Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha. And I think I'm a David, but I really aspire to be a Moira. What are you even talking about? All my Schitt's Creeks fans know what I'm talking about. Ah. You need to watch that show, girl, because I think you're a Stevie with a little bit of Twyla mixed in. I watched a few episodes and then just forgot about it I think well it's not something you should forget about get on that wagon girl (laughs) all right all right anyways (laughs) welcome to addicted to murder and we're going over Gary Ridgway part two um we have our regular social media stuff we'll talk about go ahead Courtney tell them all that stuff yes you can find us um, on Facebook at addicted to murder podcast or at our Instagram which is addicted to m podcast and can I just point out that as of this morning, we are only four people away from having 100 followers on Instagram. Dang. So tell your friends. Tell your friends. Um, and then addicted to murder gmail at podcast.com if you have any questions, comments, etc. Um, we've been getting some interesting stuff through the Instagram, including someone whose uncle worked with Gary Ridgeway. And apparently the uncle said Gary was very creepy. Yes. Shout out to my old elementary school friend, Brittany. That's who it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to, we realize that you guys don't know us very well, those who aren't our friends and family. Um, so we're just going to do this new segment where we just ask each other just one question, you know, at the beginning of each one. So this is my question for today. Courtney, imagine if you will, waking up on a Sunday morning in your big comfy bed with your pod dog Rika on the bed with you snuggling with you sunshine is streaming through the windows warming up your face the cats are on the floor bathing in that same sun that's warming up the floor and you get up you do your necessaries what is your favorite thing to do on a Sunday morning Ooh, that's a good one I think my favorite thing to do, weather permitting, is to walk out onto the front porch and just like look out over the neighborhood and I live up on the top of a hill um, and so it's all surrounded by trees and I can see a lot of, you know, the city below me. So it's probably one of my favorite things to do. For me, I like to get up, have my cup of coffee, sit on my big white comfy chair And during quarantine, I acquired quite a few bird feeders, and I just like to watch the mayhem that is breakfast time in my backyard for all those birds, and it can get quite chaotic. And then you throw in that squirrel that comes around once in a while, and then we've got a couple blue jays. Fun fact, blue jay, jay is short for jager. I have a bird book now. Wow. That's where I am. Crazy bird lady. That sounds nice. And that was getting to know Courtney and Trisha. Yes. Okay. Anything to say before we get started in part two? Well, not really. Okay. Well, then we're going to dive right in. So in part one, we went over a bit about how Gary was described in high school. We know that he was held back and we know that he started engaging in worrying behaviors such as fire starting, animal cruelty, etc. And that he had been a bedwetter until the age of 13. This all points to the McDonald triad or the dark triad that Courtney went over in the first episode. 
So Gary went to Taiyi High School, and although his peers may have been aware of some dysfunction in his home life, they often describe Gary as an ordinary kid. He was into sports, cars, girls. He apparently had no trouble getting a date with the ladies, even though he was small for his age. He was about five foot seven and skinny at about 145 pounds. He did, however, make the freshman football team, but was not a star, star player by any means. Most of his teachers didn't remember Ridgeway at all. He seemed to be a guy that sort of blended in. Despite him not graduating until he was 20, um, it sounds like he was held back twice, but the same grade twice. So he repeated a grade three times. Uh, all, or he did a grade three times. He did graduate um, at the age of 20. Um, he didn't make a big impact on most of the people around him. When they did later interviews, they just they didn't really remember most people didn't remember who he was, even though he was there for a very long time. Um, I just want to point out that my opinion of Gary, Gary Ridgway is that he looks like a mixture of Ned Flanders and Gary Oldman. Courtney, do you agree? Uh, who does he remind you of? Um, I can definitely see the, the Gary Oldman portion, um, but honestly, he kind of reminds me of my middle school principal, Mr. George. Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay. Well, I um, recommend you guys look at pictures of him. We have a bunch posted on our Instagram. He just looks very much like a normal dude. I mean, yep, he's your average, don't they always? <laughs> your average 70s dad. <laughs> um, Courtney, why do you think Gary was such a quiet guy? I would have thought someone with his home life would have had behavior issues in school. You know, or like Ted get caught doing odd things such as masturbating in a closet. We see with the kiddos that you treat that behavior issues are very common with a home life as chaotic as the Ridgeways. Um, it seems to have been practice not to draw attention to himself, and he was able to get away with murder for so long. Yeah, so with Ted, we talked about how some children react to neglect and abuse in ways that can be violent and closed off from relationships. Um, including the diagnosis, potentially, of reactive attachment disorder. Um, but that's not the only outcome um, from those same circumstances. So many children who don't meet the criteria for like an attachment disorder necessarily, um, but are subjected to physical and sexual abuse, respond in kind of the opposite way of being very timid, very withdrawn, kind of appearing as if they want to disappear. Um, it's kind of the coping mechanism of if I don't make any noise, if I don't get in their way, then maybe like dad won't notice me and I won't get in trouble today. Um, but this doesn't quite fit Gary all the way either. Like he had some of those characteristics, um, but he was also really social. So I would maybe explore the idea of his having developed a different kind of attachment disorder called disinhibited social engagement disorder. Um, and so this is caused by the same triggers as reactive attachment disorder does. So not knowing how to trust others, um, all of that stuff, but it results in very different behaviors. So a child or a person with disinhibited social engagement disorder really has like no inhibitions about talking to new people asking or sharing personal information about themselves um, or asking about others. They'll willingly leave with like an unknown adult if they're a child still, you know, and they don't feel that need to like check in with authority figures. And so as an adult, this would look like being 
pretty friendly, but would only ever develop those surface level attachments and relationships to others because there's still that fear of getting too closely attached. Okay. Interesting. Um, we're just going to keep discovering these childhood disorders, aren't we? Yep. Um, so what do you think is more common, RAD or DSED, in a situation such as like what we're seeing, Gary, and the people we've studied so far, I guess? Um, and the people we've studied so far, and kind of probably in this population this of serial killers, uh-huh. um, we'll probably see a lot more reactive attachment if we're okay. going to see an attachment disorder. So d- Gary's mm-hmm. a little different. Yeah. Okay. Well, in 1969, Mary, excuse me, Gary married his high school girlfriend, Claudia Craig. He then joined the U.S. Army and subsequently was sent to Vietnam. While there, he saw combat while serving on a supply ship. During his stay in Nam, Ridgway indulged himself with sex workers. This was probably his first interaction with sex workers, and he did not use protection. He ended up with the clap, a.k.a. gonorrhea. Courtney, do you know why they call gonorrhea the clap? You know I don't. Well, this is one of the theories. It's possible they call it that because it was the French word for brothel, clapier. And then at the time, another theory is that when you got the clap, you'd have a bubos on your um, penis and they would get rid of it by taking a big book and smashing it on the penis to squeeze out all of the liquid and it would make a clapping sound. That is a horrifying image to imagine. Yeah, wouldn't that suck? Yes. Glad I'm not a guy right now. Right. So anyways, that's why they call gonorrhea the clap. There's like the two the two options. Pick your, choose your, you know, whatever you want. Anyways, here we go. So even though Gary was angry that he got an STI, and just so you know, they call them STIs, sexually transmitted infections. They are no longer called STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. I know this because I work with a lot of STIs at work. <laughs> um, he continued with his myriad of sex worker indulgences. Suffice to say, his marriage ended within a year. Courtney, are you surprised that Gary sabotaged his marriage this way? Are you surprised he was married in the first place? I'm not surprised that he got married. Um, I think he was a pretty personable guy, and it was the thing you do when you reach adulthood, um, especially kind of back in the 60s. Um, So, no, but I'm also not engaged that he, you know, encountered and engaged with sex workers while overseas. You know, that was the exact modeling of a relationship he saw growing up, you know, watching his parents' marriage. Um, And, you know, we can't place all the blame on the marriage falling apart on Gary, as it's been reported that Claudia also had an affair Mm -hmm. while um, Gary was deployed. Right. So you're not surprised that he started having prostitute affairs overseas. Well, soon after leaving the military, Gary began working at Kenworth Trucking Company as a painter, where he would remain for the next 30 years. Gary uh, married again to Marsha Laureen in 1973. This union actually resulted in a son named Matthew. If you read the book um, by Anne Rule called Green River Running Red, um, she calls him Chad. She changes names of a few people. During this marriage, Gary also became religious, even to the point where he would preach to neighbors. He would often read the Bible at home and reportedly would be seen crying often after sermons or even after just reading the Bible. Courtney, anything to say about his zealous behavior at this time? 
So one hypothesis um, we might consider is that Gary could have been feeling conflicted about his engagement with sex workers and kind of those violent urges he was having. Um, And so as an attempt to maybe alleviate the guilt, he tried to pour all of his focus into religion instead. Um, And I mean, those who knew him at the time often reported that many of his preachings focused on the evils of prostitution. And I mean, this also mimicked the messages that he would get from his father growing up who would say that, you know, sex workers were evil and, you know, they were going to go to hell, but then would also engage with with them in, in front of Gary sometimes. Right. Well, this marriage was also short-lived as both partners were unfaithful. Marcia also claimed that Gary would put her in a chokehold occasionally. Courtney, when placing a person in a chokehold during sex, is it a control and dominance thing? Do you think that because of how his mother treated his father that this was a subconscious or even a conscious way conscious way of showing how he could be a dominant figure? Yes. So using any form of strangulation is absolutely about power and control. Um, and it is most likely related to the hatred that he developed towards women because of his mom's actions towards him. Um, it probably made him feel strong and powerful which would have been even extra arousing to him. Um, And of course, it speaks very directly to how he would later go about killing his victims. So this might be a stupid question, but you say that strangulation is absolutely about power and control. Can you elaborate any more on that? Yeah, so strangulation is a very intimate sort of way of of killing or harming um, because you have to be right up there close to the victim especially if it's done with hands or arms. Mm -hmm. It's so very, very personal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that way, it is physically overpowering somebody. And they can see you doing it. They know Mm -hmm. you're doing it. Exactly. Okay. Well, Gary's final marriage was to Judith Lynch in 1988. It was reported by many that Gary had an insatiable appetite for sex. All of his wives said that he demanded sex several times a day. Um, He also wanted to do this type of thing in public areas or in nature. Courtney, from your research, do you think that Gary suffered from nymphomania? And can you describe what nymphomania is and why it occurs and how it can be treated? Four-parter. Yes. So nymphomania is actually an outdated term. Um, In the past, it was used to describe only women who had an insatiable need for sex. Um, There was another word for men, uh, but that's also not really used anymore. Um, So the better term here would be what we call hypersexuality, which is defined as exhibiting unusual or excessive concern with or indulgence in sexual activity. And so hypersexuality can be seen as a symptom sometimes of a larger disorder, like bipolar disorder or OCD, Um, but it can also be classified on its own as like a sexual or what we call like a paraphilic disorder. Um, If there's something specific about like the type of sexual activity. Um, And then some people um, are also thinking of kind of hypersexuality as falling under an addiction. So the idea of sex addiction um, kind of are all within the realm of things that fall under hypersexuality. Um, For Gary, I would add on the more specific diagnosis of exhibitionism, which relates to having sex where you may be seen or discovered in the act. 
And then as for treatment, you know, for many people, they don't really see this as a problem. I'm guessing Gary didn't see this as a problem. Um, but for those that do, there is therapy um, or 12-step programs for like a sexual addiction. Um, or if it's part of kind of one of those larger diagnoses, then properly treating that problem, like the bipolar OCD with therapy or medication um, is what would be advised. Just a note, um, hypersexuality is also a common response to repeated sexual trauma as a child. So you think that Gary had hypersexuality? Yes. Right? And so I'm thinking that as repeated sexual trauma as a child, that his mom must have repeatedly done what we had talked about in the first one, maybe not just once. What do you think? I would very much doubt that it was a one-time thing. Okay. So before we start on the murders, are there any insights you have at this time as we wrap up his childhood and early adulthood? So Gary Ridgway, now he's around the age of 30. He's been slowly formed into kind of a dangerous wolf masked in sheep's clothing. He is groomed from a young age to need and want sex, while simultaneously hating the women he uses to meet that need. He's been exposed to violence and has been fantasizing about engaging oh, and engaging in low-intensity violent encounters with um, sex partners. And, you know, he tried to kill a little boy. And he may have actually killed another boy as a teen. So it was only a matter of time before the transformation to serial killer was complete. Okay. Well, officially, the first known victim of the Green River Killer was found in the summer of 1982. A man was on a small boat on the river, um, and he found the bodies of two young women submerged under the water and alerted authorities. The two bodies were naked and showed signs of strangulation and sexual assault. They were eventually identified as Wendy Lee Caulfield, who was 16, and Giselle Ann Lavorn, who was 19. Both were known to engage in sex work along the Pacific Highway in SeaTac, the town. That was notorious at the time for sex work and had been reported missing. The murders of these two young, two young women would be the first of many similar murders that Gary would commit. He was 33 at the time of these murders. Courtney, um, do you think that these were truly the first murders that he committed? I mean, we kind of just a little bit went over that, but what are your thoughts? You know, it's hard to say, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were others before this. You know, with the level of violence and the malicious intent that he had at 16 years old when he stabbed a five-year-old kid, um, it would be hard to believe that he waited another 15 years before doing something like that again. And it's also possible that he had several attempts at killing, um, but like the victims got away or escaped. And as they were likely sex workers, these women wouldn't necessarily have reported an attack to the police. Okay. Well, over the next three years, Gary continued to pick up and murder sex workers at a regular pace. He worked rotating shifts at the truck yard, so it would not be odd for him to be driving to or from work on the Pacific Highway at all hours of the day and night. His routine was to drive up in his old pickup truck to solicit a sex worker, usually one that was very young. Seems like he preferred teenagers. He would sometimes show a picture of his son or have some of his son's clothes or toys in the truck to make himself less threatening, sort of the way Ted did with his cast. Mm -hmm. Once in the car, Gary would either take the woman back to his house or drive to a secluded spot where he would have sex with them and then strangle them, usually with a piece of their own clothing or lingerie. 
Once they were dead, he would dump the bodies, usually in clusters of two to four, in secluded areas by the Green River, in the forests around the area, um, or in the deserted abandoned business lots in King County. There were two bodies that were found in the Tigard area of Portland. Uh, Gary denies killing anyone outside of the Seattle King County area. He says he dumped bodies in Oregon, but he may have killed them in Oregon. But he, at the very least, dumped bodies there. While they didn't stop completely, the rate of murders slowed down after 1984, with many more bodies being discovered as late as 1992. So during the time between 1982 and 1992, there were 21 victims that were attributed to the Green River Killer. These were mostly teenagers who were engaged in sex work to survive the circumstances they found themselves in. Some were reported missing by their families, their friends, and some were never reported missing. Courtney, do you have any thoughts on why or how so many young girls could disappear without people noticing or caring? Unfortunately, it has always been easy for women to go missing or be killed, especially those in marginalized communities. Gary preyed on young teenage sex workers, and in the 70s and the 80s, and still today to a lesser degree, people in society and law enforcement often viewed these women as less than human. Or if they were viewed as human, they were seen as criminals who deserved to be arrested, or who were asking to be killed, so to speak, by working the streets. So, and these women could also be transient, you know, moving between different cities or had been reported as runaways. And it's just assumed that they didn't want to be found. So nobody went looking for them. Well, and back then, you know, there weren't computers to be like, this missing person in this state may have been found in this state. You know, so to this day, they still have uh, unidentified Green River killers, uh, victims, right? That's correct. Um, Because, you know, Gary doesn't remember everyone's names. So, yeah. After the discovery of the first few bodies, the King County Sheriff Department created the Green River Task Force. This area was still reeling from the murders and investigations committed by Ted Bundy. So there was a lot of pressure to find this new killer fast. The team started interviewing the sex workers who worked in the area, setting up surveillance to monitor repeat customers and asking anyone who lived and worked in the area for information. They looked into men who were reported by the women to have been suspicious or violent, high-profile men who would not want to get out that they solicited underage sex workers, and the boyfriends and pimps that were engaged in trafficking these girls. Courtney, why do you think that Gary was able to avoid detection and continue continue murdering with all this attention on the case? The same way that he was able to be so forgettable by his teachers and peers. You know, he didn't have any distinguishing physical features. You know, he was smaller in stature um, and so not viewed as someone who necessarily would be scary. And, you know, if and when he did encounter law enforcement, he was meek and polite. So there wasn't really anything about him on the surface that raised red flags. Right. And other serial killers or killers in general like to brag, you know, and Gary was quiet. He kept to himself. Right. There was that too. And, you know, with his rotating schedule too, like he wasn't always going at the same time of day. And so Mm -hmm. it might not be the same officers who see his truck or even the same girls that see his truck. 
Well, Gary was arrested for solicitation in 1982, and, and he was identified as a person of interest because he did frequent the area to hire sex workers. And he did have an old truck that matched some of the descriptions provided from witnesses. In 1984, he was asked to take a polygraph polygraph, excuse me, which at the time was reported that he had passed. And after this, the task force moved on to other suspects that they felt that were more likely to be the killer than Gary. Courtney, let's talk a little bit about poly- polygraphs here. Um, you know, it seems far too often, at least back in the day, I don't know how much of it happens anymore, but if a suspect passes a polygraph, um, they just look, okay, he's good to go. Um, now, polygraphs aren't admissible in court. Correct. They can't get you a search warrant. Um, I mean, I feel like they can be a tool, but it gets frustrating when someone who passes it, and that's the only thing that really exonerates them, they get away. You know, what do you think? I agree, um, especially because there's so much ambiguity involved in polygraph testing. You know, there are many things biologically that can cause spikes or changes in things like pulse and blood pressure and perspiration that have nothing to do with lying or dishonesty. Um, And then the analysis of the results can also be pretty subjective to the person giving the test. So two people might read the results and come to completely different conclusions. Yeah, and we were just, Courtney and I were just talking to my mother-in-law whose um, husband had been a polygraph examiner and a homicide detective. And um, apparently they're good at getting, you know, confessions out of people just with the fear of taking the polygraph and to do like a good interview beforehand. So I guess in that way it can be useful. But even he was sort of uh, not really into the results and, you know, anyhow. But that's how, that's what they did back then. Maybe had they not just checked Gary off the list because he passed the polygraph, he would have been caught a heck of a lot sooner. Possibly. Well, during this time, Gary continued to kill and revisit his victims' bodies. He would intentionally contaminate some of the crime scenes by leaving trash or cigarette butts to confuse the detectives. He would also occasionally have sex with the dead bodies. We know from part one that he would fantasize about necrophilia from a young age after hearing about it in one of his dad's stories. Sometimes he would stage the victims themselves in odd ways, such as placing fish on their torsos or inserting rocks into their vaginas. Um, Gary also liked to read true crime in detective magazines, much like our friend Ted. And he got ideas of how to mislead the investigation from these. I was reading, uh, we both read Ann Rule's Green River Running Red, and Gary said that he claimed to have read several of her books. And she, in her book, was like, oh, my gosh. So, anyhow. (laughs) He also, I think she said, um, showed up at one of, her like lectures oh, she was giving in Seattle. Oh, I didn't see that she didn't part. know that at the time, oh, but really? later found that out. Well, you know, he evaded capture for a long time. Mm-hmm. So one of the ideas he had was to call in or write a letter with anonymous tips or leads. He wrote an anonymous letter to the Green River Task Force in 1984 with a long list of tips or possible ideas about the killer. It was reported to have been barely legible and at first was believed to be written in code, but it was really just Gary's poor writing and dyslexia that made it very difficult to understand. 
Eventually, one of the detectives sat down with it long enough to make out most of what it said, which was a mishmash of unrelated ideas, including real evidence that was found, um, claims that the killer chewed gum and smoked, suggested that the killer was being blackmailed, etc. Um, I actually deciphered the first part of the letter. Um, it's on our Instagram page if you want to give it a try. It was tough. Um, he doesn't yeah. use any spaces. Doesn't use any spaces. His, his handwriting's not that great. It doesn't... His, his spelling's it, not that great. It doesn't make... A lot of it doesn't make sense. It's If any of you are It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fans, it's almost like how Charlie writes anything. It's kind of how Gary did. Um, at, the at the time, detectives concluded that this could not have possibly come from the real killer as they had profiled the killer as being intelligent and organized. While the later... Excuse me. While the letter was basically nonsensical chaos, nonsensical chaos, and now I sound like Charlie. In fact, one of the profilers uh, brought in on the case was FBI agent John Douglas. We've talked about him a lot. He interviewed and worked with Jerry Brudos, Ed Kemper. Um, he's on the Netflix series Mindhunter, or I mean, that's what it's based on. Um, Jerry or John <laughs> did not believe this letter was really even from the killer at all. And he did a profile on the Green River Killer, and he said that he'd be a large, strong man who was inadequate and could not keep a job. He'd later recount that he got Ridgeway's profile wrong. It's also interesting to note that Ted Bundy wrote one of the leads on the task force to offer his personal profile of the Green River Killer. Bundy was, of course, trying anything to get out of the electric chair and um, offered that the offender would likely revisit the corpses and would have sex with them. Um, I don't think they must have paid attention to dead Ted because Gary did do this. Um, Courtney, what's going on with Gary at this point? So Gary Ridgway has finally found the thing that he's great at. You know, he's been successful at killing and hiding bodies and at confusing and evading the police for years. So I imagine that his confidence and the need to feel like he's in control is pretty well met at this point. Um, so it's unclear if kind of at this point in his life, his actual like urges and need to kills slow down or if during this time he just got really lucky with hiding the bodies. Um, I don't know if you're going to, if I'm saying something too early, but in the book I read, he said that because of his third wife, he was happy and he didn't need to kill anymore. That's him, though. He lies. Yes. Well, also, he didn't marry his third wife until 1988. Right, right, right. So there's yeah. potentially... Still six years. In between. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. As the investigation continued, there was no real reliable leads or suspects. There was enough uh, there was enough evidence to charge anyone. The detectives again looked over their initial list of regular Johns who fit, who fit the generic description, including Ridgeway. Uh, he was interviewed again in 1987, and at that time, a DNA sample was taken, I think it was saliva, uh, and stored in a freezer. They didn't have the technology to go through it yet, um, but they did hang on to it in hopes that they would. Over the next few years, the task force was slowly reduced and then shut down, and the Green River case was considered cold. Courtney, I think we're going to stop for today. Yes. And um, what do you want to say? I want to say that the members of this task force were some of the most dedicated and intelligent 
and dogged detectives and investigators and officers, I think, to to work in, mm-hmm. you know, the homicide field. And we'll see just how far that dedication goes when we, you know, start up with part three. Right. Yeah, this is, I mean, the fact that he got away with this for so long. Mm-hmm. And he was right there in Seattle the whole time. It's not like he moved on to another state. Nope. I mean, it's crazy. It is. But it should be interesting. Yes, it should be. All right, everybody. Well, see you next Tuesday. Bye.